Hello and welcome to the Manchester is Red podcast. My name is Stephen Rilston. We're recording this episode on a Monday morning after Manchester United defeated Brentford 2-1 at Old Trafford thanks to a late, very dramatic Scott McTominay brace. Who would have thought? Not many people, I would say. And Tyrell Marshall was at the game. Old Trafford in the press box, as usual, Ty. Um, a pretty dismal performance, it's fair to say. Brentford locked on course to win a pretty deserved 1-0 victory. Scott McTominay comes on, 87th a minute, two goals. How has that happened? <laughs> no idea, to be honest. Absolutely no idea. It was, uh, yeah, it was a stressful afternoon, given the uh, the rewrites that were required there. Not just from a unacceptable defeat, unacceptable draw, but somehow a, a heroic win. So yeah, it was um, an immensely confusing game. I mean, the, the stuff I'd written for the final whistle was generally on how poor they were, especially second half. I think I, I think I used the term that they were a broken team in the second half, and. McTominay came on and stitched them back together, basically. I'm not sure how. Um, a lot of talk now of it being a turning point. We'll come on to that. You've got to do more to make it a turning point than just than just say it and hope it. But yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know how it happens. Like I say, I thought they were poor. I thought they started okay again, to be fair. They didn't create loads, but you know, they, it did feel like they were controlling the game until they went behind and playing the game in Brentford's half, not creating a lot of chances. And then, the, I mean, the goal is just absolutely lamentable um, the, some of the goals they conceded you know I talked about the three against Galatasaray and especially the one from the throw on Tuesday night this was just a, a catalogue of errors Casemiro giving the ball away Lindelof's clearance straight back into the danger zone and then Anana basically jumping over the ball again it was a disaster and then like I say second half I never really thought they looked like getting back into the game um, it, didn't, it didn't feel like they were going to turn it around and you know, the only jeopardy was that Brentford were only winning 1-0 and it stopped really offering a threat. They weren't offering that much of a threat. And at that point, there's always the potential for, you know, something to something to happen and, and change the game. And in this job, what what you know, what's easiest in this job is that it's done and dusted at half time or with 20 minutes to go. And the Crystal Palace in the League Cup. Yeah, Crystal Palace in the League Cup, something like that. Three 0 at half time, three 0 after an hour, you know, you know what's gonna happen. There's no chance of a comeback. Here there was always that little possibility of a comeback in it. It did just completely change change everything, and you know I think I said to Samuel with about ten minutes to go, they could have done with killing them off here because it was you know everyone had written inquest pieces, what on earth to go in wrong pieces, and you know, it'd rip it up and start again when United score, and you know it's this it's adrenaline for us when it happens and, and thrilling, and it was an amazing comeback. I mean the noise, the noise when McTominay's second goal went in was unbelievable. I, I don't think I've ever heard Old Trafford that loud to be honest. Um, you know, it wasn't just your, your normal celebration noise. It was like a guttural roar, basically, like a relief mixed with celebration and frustration coming out. It was a remarkable noise that lasted for a long time and celebrations were pretty incredible. But yeah, I think a lot of us were left scratching our heads at how exactly they had, they had got away with it. I think I still am. I mean, the yeah. goals themselves, McTominay takes that ball down. Dare I say it almost that man, even who with Jess. Yeah. The way he you know, took the ball down. I mean, they scored the just before left. that as well. Yeah, offside, yeah, yeah, I that's true. I've actually forgotten about it until yesterday. Yeah, um, and then we got a praise Harry Maguire for the second goal. He Absolutely. wins that header from the free kick. McTominay puts the back of that. He kind of talked about his, 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 how proud he was to represent Manchester United after the game, what it means to represent the club, which was some nice quotes coming out. Um, but we've just talked about Maguire and McTominay there. Those two players were going to leave the club in the summer. West Ham had launched a bid. It was considered. It was obviously rejected in the end. In another world, this result might end have happened. 100%, yeah. I mean, 
you know, my, my rewrite consisted of an intro that it, had this summer gone differently, Maguire and McTominay would have been seeing up for West Ham United rather than Manchester United. It was a very West Ham goal as well, wasn't it? It was a very West Ham goal, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, the, it, it, West Ham had a bit accepted for Maguire and the move didn't happen. I think it could have happened again at the end of the window, but for the defensive injuries that United had at that time. Um, McTominay, we know West Ham were interested. Never got as far as a bid being accepted, but... Had Amrabat come in earlier or had Kobe Mainu not got injured in that Real Madrid game in, in Houston, I think he could have gone as well. And essentially, Ten Hag, you know, just my piece was Ten Hag has been bored breathing time by two players. He he was open to selling. And, you know, it kind of sums up where United are at the moment and, and what's going on with United, that it is two players who essentially are outcasts. You know, they're only getting in the team because there's there's so many injuries at the moment and, and things are getting desperate. So, you know, they they... They got a little fortune there because they could have easily left the club. I think there's probably an expectation both will leave the club next summer. So, you know, it, it just shows the narrative sometimes that, that those two players have have combined to to rescue it. And kind of, you know, a bit cheesy, but fitting in a way that on a day when, you know, there was wearing black armbands for Alex Ferguson's wife, Lady Cathy Ferguson, not just that they score twice after for the 90th minute, kind of the ultimate Fergie tribute, but that it's Scott McTominay as well and, you know, I said in my piece that McTominay is... I, I was against selling him all summer. I think he's... He's effective, isn't he? In he's effective. Role. And he's the type of player that every Fergie title winning team... You know, Fergie would always have found room for Scott McTominay. And he might only start 15 to 20 games a season. But he'd start him... He'd have started him at left-back recently with the injuries. He could start him at centre-half or at right-back, anywhere in midfield. He's the kind of, you know, the academy graduate that knows what it means to represent the club. He knows the culture of the club. He's reliable. He's not going to complain. He'll give you consistency of, you know, six, seven out of 10, maybe for 20 games a season in a variety of positions. I just think, you know, all of Fergie's title winning teams had those sort of players there. And I think, you know, I, I, I don't think he's someone that should necessarily leave the, the club. They bought Amrabat in now, which adds to the competition. Um, you know, I'd be intrigued to see whether Sofie Amrabat is actually that much better than Scott McTominay over the next eight months or so. It's also possible that he's actually played in the wrong position over the last few years. He was tend to be used as number six as a deep line midfielder in the Solskjaer, that dreaded double pivot with Fred, obviously McFred, very famous. But we see him for Scotland and he kind of plays as an advanced number eight. He comes, we've talked about this podcast, where he arrives in the box late, almost like Frank Lampard used to. And he's really effective in that role. And you see him time and time again coming on for United and in a more advanced position. And like I say, he's effective when he comes and he makes those runs and he can get goals. He's got goals in his game, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, 100% he's got goals in his game. I mean, I think he's one of the top scorers in European qualifying at the moment. And he's quite hard to pigeonhole as a player because he has he's played centre-back for Scotland. As... I mean, you think he could play for a number eight for a lower Premier League club, couldn't you? That's a thing like a... Yeah. An uh, Everton maybe or someone like that. Yeah, yeah. And he, you know, he could do it for United in League Cup games and lower Premier League games if he needs to rest players or if you've got injuries like at the moment, but you know, like I say, he plays centre, he's played centre-half for Scotland previously, he's playing attacking midfield for Scotland now, he was a striker coming through at United's academy until fairly late on. He's played this this pivot role. Um, you know, I, I don't think he's someone that you would use kind of in Casemiro's role now where there's just one. You know, that, that McFred partnership, kind of together, they were a decent pivot, but obviously the, you had to use them together. One of them on their own didn't do the job. Um, yeah, and this just shows why you should keep him, I think, because I mentioned there basically every position of the pitch that he could play. You know, he can play centre-half, certainly in a three, probably in a two occasionally if it was required. He's played up front. You can throw him on late in games to 
you know, being agent of chaos, basically getting the box. Um, and he is kind of unpredictable in that way. And he always thrived against Leeds when, when it was Soscar against Bielsa. So he seemed to enjoy those games. And there he played those advanced roles. Because like you say, those runs, when Leeds, Leeds were a total oh, sort of mess, marking team. Yeah. Yeah. And McTominay had the legs and the energy to basically run past his marker. And that's what made him such a threat in those games. So yeah, I think, you know, there's, there's roles he can play and that versatility, especially from an academy graduate, is is to be prized, I think. And I know I know United have been desperate to raise money, but I you know, I, I still think there's there's got to be a space for him in that squad. It was a really, really important result in the end. So fair play to McTominay that had obviously him the thank really for the victory. Especially after defeats against Crystal Palace and in Galatasaray, that performance in midweek three two against Galatasaray was so poor, really terrible. Um in, especially before the international break, they had to win this game. Mm. And for 90 minutes, well, not yeah, for 90 minutes, it looked like they were heading to, to a defeat, another defeat, third consecutive home defeat. It would have been the seventh defeat in 11 games this season, which is just unbelievable. Um, so is this, a t- is this papering over the cracks, Tyrone? Or you've talked about, is it the moment where they kick on and go, right, okay, this is where our season starts. We can progress from here. We'll use this. Because for me, at the moment, it has felt in the last few weeks that it has been papering over the cracks a bit. And I'm starting to actually question the style of play. I know there's been a lot of injuries and we've talked about there have been caveats. Marcus Rashford, top goal scorer, is misfiring. That's obviously going to have a huge impact on the team. But I'm watching this, this side at the moment. I'm thinking, what are they trying to do? We're seeing them have a lot of the ball. There's not much penetration in the final third and they don't have that cutting edge to the, around the, the opposition's box. No, they don't. They've they've lost their identity from from last season. Uh, you know, very clearly lost their identity. I think, and I mean, it, it's papered over the cracks at the moment. Maybe it becomes a turning point. We shall see. Um, but as, as a as a whole, performance wasn't good enough. And as I said, I thought I thought the second half was you know that was really alarming. That second half, the number of times players would be on the ball and just kind of shrug at teammates and wonder where the movement was and. The pace of the move, you know, the pace of the players' movement was slow. The pace of the ball movement was slow. It was predictable, and it was just really, really flat second half for a game they were chasing against pretty mediocre opposition. I mean, I didn't think Brentford were particularly impressive at all. Um, they've won once all season still. Um, you know, that's the type of team that any top four side should be putting away very easily at home. And United made such heavy weather of it. We're lucky to get the win, I think, in the end. And, yeah, I mean, only time will tell whether it's papered over the cracks. It certainly changes the mood. You know, the the difference in that ten minutes with Tom Lewis. It's so pitch. crucial, isn't it, for the mood? It's oh, for the, the international mood, break. It's unbelievable. Yeah. The players leave for internationals with a spring in their step. Like I say, I mentioned the noise for the celebration for the gold celebration. The noise and the celebrations at full time. Players almost doing a lap of honour. Um, you know, ten hugs or almost dance of joy in his technical area. Or relief. Dance of relief. relief. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, 10 players in front of the Sunlight Ferguson standing with Tomine celebrating and Dallow was on his hands and knees in the penalty area almost giving thanks that they somehow got away with it. And it, it does change the mood. And we spoke to, to Dallow after the game rather than McTominay, unfortunately. It would have been nice to, to speak to McTominay, but we got Dallow. Um, and in his first answer, he said, this is, this is a turning point. But, you know, just saying it's a turning point doesn't work. It's not, it's a result that could be a turning point. It's not a performance that can be a turning point because the performance wasn't there. Um, and we've kind of had this before, you know, it's, there was a, you know, a United staff member pretty much was saying that if they can win this and beat Sheffield United, then it can be a turning point. Well, can it? Because the turning point was at Burnley, when they won at Burnley recently, they followed up by beating Palace. That was the turning point. 
then they lost to Crystal Palace at home and Galatasaray at home. So, I mean, I think the key is even when they've been winning, the performances haven't been convincing. Haven't been there. Look, they're not in the Forest game. Fair enough. You came back from two goals down, um, but it wasn't a convincing win. This wasn't a convincing no. win. I mean, the only good performance all season was against Crystal Palace in the Carabao Cup when Palace basically rope doped them to to the, win the game that counts on the on the Saturday. You know, they've not, like I said, they've not played well all season. Wolves unconvincing, Forest unconvincing. Burnley, they, you know, they, they, they dug in. They showed some positive traits that game. It wasn't a classy performance, but it was a, a gutsy a see, performance. Yeah. Um, but other than that, they've not, they've not played particularly well. And there's just, like you said, there's a lot of areas of concern. Um, you know, I, I'm with you stylistically. I don't, I, I've said this a few times, like Ted Hag, I think, tried to move it on and make them more attacking this year, and it's just not working. It's making them more open. We can't entirely overlook the injuries. It's, it's obviously a major issue in terms of the players they're missing. But just as alarming is, is players that have, have dropped off. Um, Rashford, for one. And go on and say his name. Well, I was just going to say, if, for, for people watching on video, they can see over your shoulder, Casemiro, the hero for the <laughs> that, Carabao That's who I was going to come on, because that was a key moment. He has been shocking this season. He really has. In for it, no? That was a key moment in the game. Substituted at half-time. You talked about giving the ball away for the goal. Don't know what he was doing. He tries to recover from a tackle, doesn't win it back. Obviously, Brentford go and score. We talked probably around three weeks ago, Ty. I can't remember what game it was, but me and you sat in the studio and we said, look, there's a growing conversation now around Casemiro. We're going to have to have it yeah. that he hasn't performed this season. He's not the same player as he was last year. And that performance, it was really alarming, wasn't it? Again, it highlighted how poor he's been. And Tenag agreed, he took him off, replaced him with Christian Eriksen. And I think, what did he say after the game? I wanted a bit more football. A bit more football. And yeah. that's, that's concerning as well for if you're Casemiro. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was a pretty brutal decision for him from Tenal to take him off. We, we've seen him use half-time substitutions a lot since he became United manager, but, you know, taking a player of Casemiro standing off at half-time. It's a statement, wasn't it? It's a statement, undoubtedly. And he has, like I say, I think he's been poor all season. Teams attacking midfielders are getting joy against United. You know, Odegaard, Madison, Jamal Musiala, uh, Kerrier McDougall, Conglou, I think his name was for, well for Galatasaray, who was excellent. <laughs> but they're, they're giving Casemiro the runaround because they're finding it so easy. And, you know, I, I had this debate on, on um, X in the week about how he needs, um, you know, fans were saying he needs someone alongside him, basically, like Amrabat. We had that on Saturday and he was still bad. And he, he shouldn't need it, a player alongside him. The very best teams will often play with just one holding midfield and not two. You know, United fans were unhappy that they were using two with McFred. And okay, it was the quality as much as anything there. But most, you know, Liverpool are playing Alexis McAllister as a lone holding midfielder, who's not even really a holding midfielder. City play Rodri on his own normally when he's fit and available. Um, Arsenal are playing Declan Rice on his own and, and moving a fullback in there. So Casemiro should be able to do that for Manchester United, but he can't this season. And he just looks, you know, he looks sluggish. Um, he's almost one step behind what's going to happen at is. the moment and the yeah. good player should be one step ahead yeah. and you're watching him he's, he's so like Luster he looks like he's, he's lost even more pace we've talked about his age he's only 31 though Tyrone I know it's getting on but in the grand scheme of things players these days the longevity of their careers 31's not that old it's not that old um, you know he's he's quite bulky and there was there was a comment last year to uh, a Brazilian journalist who does a lot of games at Old Trafford and he he, I can't remember the exact quotes, but it was something about like, oh, everyone in Brazil knows that I like my food or like to eat. Loves a barbecue. <laughs> Fair enough. Like, you know, I, you know, I, we all do. Yeah. Love a Brazilian barbecue <laughs> at the moment. Um, but, if, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know if that's just a joke or if, you know, he is overdoing it at times in the summer. But if you are, then maybe at 31, it, it does catch up with you. And you know, I, was, I was saying on Saturday that at the moment, if, if this continues, you might be on the phone to Saudi Arabia in the summer trying to get someone to, because they're committed to it for five years. And, 
we're one year and what two three months yeah. into that contract so. the, the problem is there's a lack of like number sixes out there I mean every team's kind of after one at the moment mm. and you think you look at the market Declan Rice just went to Arsenal Real Madrid have already got a few fantastic ones they're not going to sell sell them like Calvin who, Phillips <laughs> <laughs> could you imagine but that's I mean that's another problem for the summer isn't it it is yeah and I, I mean maybe he'll, he'll come good there's still time to turn it around and like I say he's not the only player in that team who's out of form but he is a major, major problem. And it's going to be interesting to see how Ten Hag shapes this midfield because it's the one area he has got a lot of options and McTominay's put his name back in the frame. I don't think he'd be starting at the moment, but um, we know Ten Hag lost Kobe Mainu, got Mount Fernandez, Ericsson, Amrabat now. There's a lot of options there in midfield and Casemiro's got to be under pressure because like you said, I just don't think he's been he's been good enough. I thought he was, I, I, I thought he was really poor in Munich against Bayern. And I mean, Musiala gave him the runaround there, I thought. And then he scored twice at the end. And, you know, you're, you're kind of rephrasing it and, and you know, re-looking re at his performance. But he's not in the team to score goals. He's in the team to stop them, be conceded. And he's not he's not doing it enough at the moment or well enough for me. And, you know, that, that description of being half a second or a second behind and just a little bit slow to everything, I think, is is fitting. And the goal that Galatasaray scored from the throw in midweek, when, when that throw comes in, he's next to, to the number seven. And then when the ball goes in the back of the net, the number seven, six or seven yards away from him. And he's just, you know, he, he's not quick enough there. And even the, the tackle to get sent off, it, I mean, it's about, you know, it's Inanna's fault, like clearly it was a poor pass out, but the ta that tackle was never on. You're never going to win the ball there. It was just... Especially a player of his experience, you should be, you should understand yeah, what's going to happen. What's going to happen. There's still a chance Inanna makes the save. Yeah. Um, and if he doesn't, it's not your fault. It doesn't, it's not your fault. And it's better to have 11 on the pitch. You must have known exactly. that the only thing that was going to happen there was a penalty and a red card. Um, and yeah, he has, you know, he's, he, he is a major concern this season, I think. And United need him to, to improve pretty quickly. It's definitely a lot of concerns at the moment. There is a lot of concerns. We'll continue yeah, yeah. that in, uh, in part two, but that's it for part one. Welcome back to part two of the Manchester is Red podcast. Now, Ty, we kind of touched on Andre Nana there and his, uh, what should we say, a weak hand for the first yeah. goal. Kind of went under his body, didn't it? He? he got a hand to it, but it still went in. The replays confirmed what it looked like. It was really poor. Um, he had a poor game against Bayern Munich where he made that howler. Galatasaray was his worst performance today. Uh, that pass for the penalty, as we've just discussed with Casemiro. And then he went down far too easy uh, for the match-winning goal mm -hmm. for Cardi. And he comes out and he, he needs to respond before the international break. He needs to go out on a high, doesn't he? And he makes this mistake. Yeah. Um, what have you made of Anana's first few months? Well, first few months? Is it first first two months at the club? Really? Basically, yeah. I, I thought he started pretty well. And, you know, watching him in pre-season, you could see the change from De Gea. You could see the change early on from De Gea. But there have been those those errors. I mean, you look back now to the opening day of the season when he nearly, well, he probably should have conceded the penalty against Wolves. Yeah. Um, and, and the decision-making's been a little bit off. And recently, I mean, it's kind of it's kind of all going to part at the moment. Um, I thought his distribution on Saturday was really weird, to be honest. They, they just they took short goal kicks to him, and then he just leathered it. Is that not saying a lack of confidence? I feel well, it's carried around the so. mistakes. Yeah, I think. possibly so. Yeah. I mean, it's you know, it, it felt fitting that it was Brentford away a year ago that convinced Ten Hag that De Gea we can't play out from the back with De Gea. We've just got to go long, and then the Liverpool game the week after, De Gea just launched every goal kick and. Here, you were kind of like, I mean, De Gea could have done what Nanana did on, on Saturday. And he would have saved that shot. And he would have probably have saved that shot, yeah. yeah. And, you know, there, there's, there's some slight mitigation and that shot came through a couple of bodies, but it, it wasn't particularly powerful. It was in the middle of the goal. 
he got a strong enough hand to it. His hand almost just went over the top of the ball. Um, you would have saved that. I would have saved it. You would have saved sure, it. Mate, if I anyone doesn't know Tyrone plays as a goal. I'd have caught it and started counting. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and like I say, it was after that, it was his distribution that, that kind of concerned me. I mean, it should be remembered that he actually made two pretty decent saves at 1-0 in like the 87th minute, maybe, something like that. Tipped over the bar. Tipped over the bar from Mopai yeah. and then the header, I think, from Norgard. But I mean, saves you'd probably expect a keeper to make, but he, he did them, you know, he saved them very competently and they turned out to be big, big saves. Um, so that shouldn't be forgotten. But like I say, I thought his distribution was just odd because, you know, Brentford were kind of pressing and, and cutting off passing angles and things like that. But that's why you have a keeper who's so good with his feet that you can beat that press and find a pass when, when the angles aren't on to get the team building up. But all that was happening was he was launching it and often it was going to Fernandes against Nathan Collins and it was just... It was just coming back. It wasn't sticking. So, you know, it, it, it wasn't really the moment post-match to end up getting into it with, with Ten Hag because obviously the, the narrative was very different. But it, it would be interesting to, to know what Ten Hag thought of that distribution and whether that was a deliberate plan to maybe go long and, and look to win second balls and things like that. But, you know, I, I don't think that is what Anana has been, has been signed for. I think he's been signed to clip passes into midfield and the fullbacks and, and get United playing out rather than just launching it upfield. I was just double checking how many goals he's conceded this season. Nineteen, nineteen, um, was, which has been terrible. But obviously, a caveat on top of that, which we'll come on to, is the defence. We've had major injuries. The Sanjay Martin is, is out. Rafael Rafa Varane, a minor injury. It was described as he's out again. Tyrone, which for all Varane's a fantastic player, and we see his quality time and time again. It just happens far too often that he's out of an injury, yeah. doesn't it? And that's probably going to be something to address in the summer as well. Probably going to need a set and a half. Um, in terms of who played, obviously, in defence on Saturday, Johnny Evans, Harry Maguire, uh, centre-back, and we had Victor Lindelof at left-back. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when we saw the line-up, we thought Lindelof was going to be on the right opposite back. side, yeah. right-back. What did you think of that? Because that was a bit of a bizarre tactic, I thought. I thought Lindelof would have played on that side. And he had a bit of a poor game, didn't he? But I did feel a bit sorry for him because he was out of position, and I think he might have been carrying an injury because he went down straight down the tunnel. He did get straight down the tunnel. Substituted, yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he plays for Man United, so it makes sense if he was carrying an injury. <laughs> if you're a defender, you've got to get an injury <laughs> yeah, yeah, if you play exactly. for Man United. Probably felt left out. Um, yeah, yeah well, he had a tough time of things, but I can't imagine he's played left back that often before. He's, he's definitely played right back on occasion, but left back's a very different role. Why do you think he did that then? I'm guessing he didn't want to move Dallow and. Maybe thought. interesting choice, isn't it? Yeah, and I think um, you know it, it came up with Dallow post match, and that Brentford played quite a narrow midfield, and I think he maybe felt the space was going to be wide for the fullbacks. And if you have Lindelof's not going to be an attacking right back, and if you have Dallow on the left, he's probably going to come in field. So I guess maybe he wanted Dallow to to hold the width on the right um, and give them an, an outlet down the right hand side. Um, but yeah, Lindelof did have a, a tough time. I mean, Madra also have early on had, had quite a bit of joy against him. Um, like I say, it's, I don't know what he was doing with that clearance for, for the goal. He kind of just nudged it straight back into the, the danger area. Um, I mean, the left-back the left issue has been a problem in the last few games, clearly. And it's, it's, you know, it's very unfortunate to have three left-backs who are all injured at the moment. And Regulion actually made a, a decent enough start to, to his United career. It, it did feel like the Amrabat experiment couldn't go on and, and had to end. So... I mean, like, I, I think we all probably guessed that Lindelof would come in, but then we all guessed he'd, he'd come in at right back. Yeah. Other than that, I mean, when we started to hear um, about 10 to, 10 to 2, maybe 5 to 2, that Varane was out. And then when, you, you know, when you're looking at that defence of Dallow, 
You're expecting the worst, aren't you, really? Yeah, I mean, Lindelof a left-back and then... And Brent, Brentford must be licking their lips in the dressing room as well. Yeah. You're coming out against that team, no disrespect to, yeah. to the back four, but yeah. it, I mean, Samuel wrote one of his blog posts, actually, he used the, the term, it's not befitting of Manchester United. I mean, that almost feels fair, that back four. It does, yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said, you, you can't overlook the injuries. I mean, you're not... Johnny Evans is fifth-choice centre-half. You're not going to get a better fifth-choice centre-half because in 99% of seasons, the fifth-choice centre-half will play three games, maybe. You know, it's you, you kind of saw it with Liverpool the other year when they were playing midfielders at, at centre-back. You just... You, and you see it with, you know, to, to go on to City, you see with the Rodri discussion at the moment. The problem is, when you've got a player that good, you can't have a backup that good. There's inevitably going to be a drop-off, and it's the same... It's the same here, you know, you can't have a fifth choice centre half who costs 30, 40 million pounds and is, is good enough to slot in every week for Man United. Otherwise, he'd be playing every week for someone else. We discussed that in the summer, we said who's going to come to the club to be that fifth yeah. choice, fifth choice. It's not a sell, it's not attractive. It's not attractive, and especially at centre back where you, you don't get rotation. At least if you're third choice centre forward, there's games where you're going to be rotated and the tacking sobs are, um, are made during games. You don't really change your centre halves during games. Um, and you know, essentially, yeah, I think there's maybe an argument that you could upgrade one of Maguire or Lindelof and, and have a better third choice. But to be fair, I thought Maguire played pretty well on Saturday. I thought Jolly Evans played well again. Um, you know, I, I didn't think the defence was was disastrous really. On, I mean, on there's been a lot of criticism in that Lindelof. I mean, you look back to spring in last year, and he was getting a lot of praise. Yeah. He was excellent, even when they had those injuries, and he stepped up and he delivered. Thinking in the semi-final against Brighton, actually, he was really good. He stood out that day. He's, he's not been really the same player, has he, this season? Just like a lot of them, which we keep on yeah. saying, he's underperformed. I argued Maguire should should have came into the fence against Galatasaray. Obviously, Lindelof started, but Maguire started here. Yeah. And as you've just said, I thought he was, he was quite decent. Um, mm. And I'd start him again after the international break. I'd have him alongside Varane for, for Chef United. Yeah, I think I'd have him alongside Varane as well. I think he's in his, his opportunity after this. Um, you know, we're... A strange situation that Ten Hag's relying on on Maguire, someone that was clearly pretty close to being pushed out the door at the week at, uh, in the summer. But yeah, I think he's he's earned his his opportunity. Like I say, I thought he did, I thought he did pretty well alongside Johnny Evans. I mean, maybe they're the solution that the Leicester partnership of 2018-19. But, um, but you know, I mean, Evans' fifth choice is is pretty reliable. You look at the two games he started now, um, Burnley and this, and I think he's played. Yeah, fair well, play to him. He's both done. really. Yeah. You you wouldn't look at him and think he's a major problem at the moment. Like you say, Maguire defended pretty well, won that header for the goal. I don't, you know, I don't really recall any major concerns. I think he started a bit shakily. There was a couple of passes, or a pass that went straight out of play, and then one header that went straight to a Brentford player. But after that, he settled into the game and, and did pretty well. And yeah, I think he's he's earned the start at the moment. But you know, going forward, it's it's probably something they need to look at. I mean, the, the Martinez thing has has got to be a concern that. He's, he's re-aggravated this foot injury. I mean, United aren't really giving much away or, you know, just kind of saying it's one of those things that happened, but he did it against Arsenal and then played 85 minutes and 90 minutes in the next two games, having not played for Argentina. I mean, it's really, really strange that that's concerning with the medical department for me that that's, that's been allowed to happen because he clearly felt it against Arsenal. And now he's probably going to be out for two months, maybe more. Um, and if there's a weakness there, and realistically, when Maguire's starting with Varane, Varane is going to be out at well, some point yeah. again. I mean, Varane, Varane has missed 35, we think it is, 35, 37 games now and has played 70 for United. That's, he's missing one in three games. And it's not like he missed 
eight months through a knee injury or a broken leg or something. It's 11 different, sorry, 10, I think it's 10 different injuries in two and two years and two months. I mean, it's, it's staggering really. And when you're only fit for one in three games, it's pretty clear you need a very good third choice centre half. And if Martinez becomes injury prone now, I mean, if hopefully the, the operation will, will sort it out, but you know, with the, the boots players wear these days, you can, you're going to get that, he's going to get that stood on a lot as a centre half. It's Gabe, aren't they? Really thin. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it could, you know, that could be an issue as well. But yeah, Varane's fitness is it's clearly a problem as well. Need him back and fit and firing Dawn and Martinez really and back to his best. He makes a huge difference a in massive, like, their ability difference. to play out from the back and find passes. Should we give Marcus Rashford an honorary mention then before we end this part? Because he was under, underwhelming again. Um, I thought by this point of the season, obviously started quite slow, but we said, look, he started up front. When he moves to the left, we expect better performances from him. It's still not happening. We've got to the October international break. He's still not firing. How does it fix? How does it get better? That's the key question. I yeah. think Tenag's scratching his head and thinking that himself, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, it is. I don't know. I mean, he's he, he's the ultimate confidence streak player, isn't he? When he goes on a goal-scoring run, he can be unstoppable. When that stops for him and he loses confidence, he can be unplayable in the sense that you can't play him. And there's, there's got to be a debate, I think, about his place in the team at the moment. Maybe he'll do well for England in the international break and that might boost his confidence. But, you know, his, his form's undoubtedly a concern. There was a couple of moments, I think he had their first shot on target in the first half and, and that was good play. But there was a moment before that when there was a ball, I think it was a heavy clearance coming to him on the left near the touchline and he tried to control it. A very simple ball coming to him and just completely missed it. And he missed it by so much that it was United's throw that the ball just basically bounced under his foot and, and he was nowhere near it. And, there was a few groans. There was a moment early on where he kind of pulled out of 50-50 and didn't get the ball. And there's a few groans from the crowd then. And The crowd are slowly, I mean, they've sensed in the last few weeks, haven't they? And they're starting to get a bit irritated by his decision-making yeah. and his, what he's doing on the ball. I think that's, that's always bobbling under the surface, I think, with, with Rashford there. Um, and like I say, when, when his confidence is low, you can kind of see that he's a player that fans might get. And when results are going against you, because you do occasionally have this, you see with Martial as well, this look of like kind of laissez-faire and not caring or whatever, which is clearly not the case, but the shoulders can slump and the body language can can get, can get be poor. And you see that with Rashford and I think fans jump on that. I mean, there was a big cheer when his number went up to to come off on, on Saturday. And I think that's probably more that it was Garnacho coming on yeah. than Rashford going off. You know, I don't, I don't think it was, uh, yeah, thank God he's going off. I think it was more people pleased to see Garnacho, but there's got to be a debate over his form. I think it's, it's one goal all season. And the big worry for United was always going to be that uh, once once they signed Hoyland instead of Kane, they needed Rashford to score 30 goals again just to match last season, really. And at the moment, it's looking like he might not get to 20. And Hoyland has started pretty well, but you know, sources at United were saying it in the summer and and we've said it, that he's not going to be a consistent goal game striker at the moment. He was brilliant on Tuesday and pretty ineffective on, on Saturday. And, and that's understandable, it, yeah. isn't it? At the stage of his career. Yeah, yeah. He's, you know, he's, if you include international appearances, I think he's on like 106, 107 senior games. He's incredibly raw. Most of those for Copenhagen and Stern Graz. So he is incredibly raw and it's inevitable that it's going to happen. He's, he's done well in two Champions League games, but the, the Brentford game and the Palace League game, he's been pretty ineffective really and that's that is inevitable United did say at the start of the summer that there was probably times where he'd have to come out of the team and they'd play Rashford or Martial through the middle but the problem they got now is that Rashford's performing to such an extent that there's kind of an issue of where do the goals come from 
Scott McTominay seems to be the answer. <laughs> get him up front. I'll get told off by the producer for this because I'll give a shout out to a rival podcast. <laughs> but uh, rest is football. Gary Lineker, um, Micah Richards, and Alan is quite good. I'll be listening to that. And they were talking, Shearer and Lineker, obviously, uh, well positioned to talk about strikers, talking about goal droughts. And they said, look, I can just take a moment where you score and it completely changes the complexion of your mind, your mindset going into the games, your confidence. And I feel that's just what Rashford needs. A few moments, get it, get it back together. I thought Arsenal tight. I thought that was going to be the moment yeah. for him. I mean, a great finish, a weird Arsenal. I know it was a defeat in the end, um, but he just hasn't kicked on from there, has he? Which is the big problem. No, he hasn't. It is, it is a big issue. And like I say, he, he, he does feel like the ultimate kind of form and, and confidence player. You think back to after the World Cup last year, we had a pretty good World Cup. And the two months or so after that, I mean, he, he was unstoppable. He was scoring every week, especially at home. And now you look at him and he looks a totally different player. And I think so much of that. And his, like I say, his body language looks different as well. He's gone from like shoulders up, chest out. I'm scoring every week. I'm the man to looking. One the pitch to swallow them all. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Sometimes. Yeah, concerned at what's at what's happening and and what's going wrong. And yeah, his you know, there's no doubt his his form. I think there's there's a lot of issues here that that are a problem for United. But two of the biggest ones, I think, are Casemiro and Rashford. If if they were playing as well as they were last season, I think this season would be going a lot better than it is. Completely, completely. Uh, we'll leave that there for part two. We'll be back in a moment for part three. Welcome back to part three of the Manchester is Red podcast. Now, Tyrone, I didn't think I'd be asking you at the start of the season about top four hopes in October. Um, just at the start of the second week of October. But I was looking at the odds this morning um, for top four. I got them sent to my email. And United are now nine to two to get top four. Chelsea, Aston Villa, Brighton, Newcastle are all a shorter price to get in the top four. Obviously, City are flying, as we expected. Arsenal are looking good. Liverpool and Tottenham are obviously up there. And I mean, from the early evidence, we talked about this a few weeks ago, they're looking quite solid in that position. Yeah. And United are already facing an uphill battle to, to replicate last season, aren't they? They are, yeah. And those top four teams at the moment, I think, I think you know, they're only four or five, five points maybe off Liverpool in fourth. I mean, United are only six points off City, so confusing them. But those top four, they they look really good teams. I think they're all they're all looking pretty good this season. Um, I mean, you read those odds out there when you throw in those, and then you add in Newcastle, Brighton, Aston Villa Villa in there as well. I'm surprised Villa are shorter. I am. Yeah. I mean, that's basically suggesting United are going to finish ninth. Yeah. I mean, if they finish ninth, I think Ten Hag's in serious trouble. Um, You'd surely think they're going to finish. Above top six, above ninth, yeah, top six, top seven. I mean, the thing with Villa and Brighton is they've got European football on Thursday night, which is going to be tricky, and they've not got huge squads. I do think they're both they're both very good teams, and I think at the moment, if you know, if United were playing either after the international break, I think they'd beat them. Brighton have already beaten them at Old Trafford. You know, I think if they were playing Villa after the international break, you'd make Villa the favourites wherever it was. Um, but it's it's a long season. You'd, you'd certainly expect them to get back in the the fight. Um, there's a chance fifth will get Champions League, of course, this season. Um, not sure how that works out. I think I think they'd actually need Villa and Brighton and West Ham to do pretty well. I think cause it's based on coefficient. But yeah, I think you know I, I think I mean, what we in we're in first second week of October. I think you're already saying it's unlike. I think it's unlikely. Clearly, you know, they'll get top four next season. I think it's unlikely they get out of their Champions League group. Um, so we we just see it so often since since the days of Fergie that they get back in the Champions League. And then they fall away the next year. And this year they've got back in the Champions League to 
by the looks of things, get out of it as quickly as they possible. Is it not absolutely bonkers that we've gone in the space of three months? Well, I mean, if you take it from May, for example, earlier this year to October, right? In that short space of time, we've gone from such positivity, a fantastic first year for Ten Hag, and a few weeks, two months into the season, it's like, what, what's going on? Right. What's happened? How's it, how's it come to this? Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, it just seems... It's a million-dollar question, isn't it? What happens to United? Yeah. It's just... It is. It almost feels like a broken club, and no matter who manages it, you're always going to have this boom bust cycle, and yeah. problems are just going to absolutely. Happen. And you know, a, a, a huge part of it is clearly the ownership. You know, that that is clearly the elephant in the room here. We've not mentioned it yet. That is a, a, a major part of it. It is not the only part of it, but it is a major part of it. And clearly, this would be a better football club if it had new owners and owners that that cared more. Basically, um, you know, that that is undoubted, but. This it is kind of a boom and bust cycle with with Europe, um, and it's got to be, it's got to change because you know I, I said this earlier in the summer when when you're in the Champions League for a year, they're out of it. it. At the moment, it feels like United are almost invited guests to the Champions League, like you're inviting some old stager back into the Champions League, like ah oh, come back and roll back the years, play nostalgia, play your greatest hits for, <laughs> for a group stage, um, and then they're back in the Europa League the year after, and play young players are going to look at that and think. If they want Champions League football, like, well, they're not reliable. You know, I might be in the Europa League next year or the Conference League. Or and inevitably, will uh, Sevilla look like likely to drop into Europa League as well? They're occupying the third position in their Champions League group. So inevitably, they'll get United. And it summed up, you know, I, um, I was, um, when I was in Munich, I did a bit for, mentioned another rival, BBC Radio Manchester for the game. And it was the day that Solskjaer had done his interview and, and they, I think he talked about trying to find Bellingham and Haaland and, said it's, it's damning on United. 15 years ago, young players of the quality of Bellingham and United would have needed Manchester United to make their careers. Now, they look at it and they think, well, I don't need well, I don't need to. It's going to do the opposite. If sometimes yeah. in, in I need to stay away from there to make yeah. a career, if anything. And that's, that's a problem. That shows how far United's stature has fallen, especially with players in that age bracket. You can barely remember this club being so successful and, and so big. And, you know, they're, they're a name. They're a huge name still. There's still going to be players out there who are desperate to play for Manchester United. I mean, I mentioned the noise for the goal on, on Saturday. Players want that. They, they, you know, players will, will want to play in front of 75,000, but what they don't want is that noise for a scratchy two on home win against Brentford. They want that for beating Real Madrid or Barcelona in the Champions League semi-finals. And at the moment, that looks, that looks a million miles off. The Beckham documentary is reminding me a lot of those games. And if you've yeah, been watching yeah. it, look, Tom only referenced that actually in his, his interview. He said, look, I've been watching it. It's inspiring. So you'd hope a lot of them have been watching that. Yeah, yeah, it's a... It's quite inspiring, actually, isn't it, to be fair? It is, yeah. um, if you look at the fixtures after the international break, Chef United away, they've been terrible, absolutely woeful. Uh, Copenhagen at home in the Champions League, Manchester City at home, um, and then Newcastle in the round of 16, the mm-hmm. League Cup, of course. So, <laughs> I mean, that's a season-defining few weeks, isn't it? Because yeah, you've got be. important Premier League games, especially against your rivals in the Manchester derby. They need to win against Copenhagen. And in the League Cup, that offered some hope and a, a brilliant cup run in the trophy last year and they need to go as, as far as they can in that competition again it's crucial really they really perform and buck up their ideas when they return to, to action isn't it yeah absolutely and you mentioned that Sheffield United game I mean at the moment that looks easy if Paul Eckenbottom gets sacked this week then it looks less easy especially if Chris Wilder comes back and gets a hero's reception and Bramall Lane will be absolutely rocking at 8pm on a Saturday night and <laughs> suddenly you'd look at it and think well, I'm not sure it's got the hallmarks of I'm not sure if I'd see United yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so oh, you know, I mean, you'd, you'd, I mean, you'd think there's probably going to be a change of manager there this, this week you'd be surprised if, if there's not so it could it could look a lot a lot trickier come kickoff time than it does at the moment 
And yeah, the, the City game is obviously huge. It's always huge. The Copenhagen games, they, they have to win both. There's no other option for them now but to win both. And I mean, even if they win both of those and Bayern Munich win both of their games, United would only be two points ahead of Galatasaray going to Istanbul. And I think if you'd have offered Galatasaray that at the start of the group stage, they'd have taken it. And if Galatasaray beat them there, then they'd only need to beat Copenhagen away. To, when you to think of these players and how they perform in raucous atmospheres, we've sort of time and time again, that's just... Oh, you no feel faith. that fixture. Yeah, there's no faith that they'd win it. Because the Turkish fans are crazy. They got yeah. from here. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they... Like I say, they, they need to use this as a turning point. It'd be interesting to see if they do. But, you know, as I said at the start, you, you can't just think, oh, God, yeah, that, was, that was great. This is... You can't kid yourself into thinking this is the turning point. You need to work to make it happen. And um, it, it is going to be a, a defining run. I mean, if they if they stumble against Sheffield United, then it just makes the City game absolutely monstrous, really. Um, City haven't been great recently. You know, they, they've fallen a bit. That's You'd fancy them under Solskjaer, I guess, so. You probably would you fancy would. them under Solskjaer. It's these kind them. of games in these circumstances yeah. that they'd often spring a shock. Yeah, I mean, you'd fancy them more if Roger could get himself suspended again. Yeah, it's true. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's going to be a, you know, a huge game and a huge run. But when you start the season as badly as United have, every game and every run at the moment is, is massive to get back on track. I was looking at how many games uh, it took Jose Mourinho to get sacked in 2018. 24. Um, eight, sorry? 24. 24 games and eight defeats. So I thought it was seven defeats. Eight defeats. 100%. I double-checked it. Double-checked okay. it because Ten Hag was obviously on six now and I yeah. thought he was going to go to seven. So well, far. I did as well. And Solskjaer got sacked after losing seven of 13. There you go. And it just shows you, doesn't it? Like if Ten Hag's lost six now in 11, yeah. I mean, that he was whisker away from seven. seven. So, I mean, we talked about it the other week. We said, look, he's got a lot of credit in the bank. And realistically, the club cannot continue this managerial merry-go-round, this boom-bust cycle as we've saw. Um, so he is going to be given time, and rightly so. But there is pressure moment on them, isn't it? Because at Manchester United, you need to get results. It's as yeah. simple as that. And they just aren't coming at the moment. No, they're not. There was a moment in the second half when they were... They passed it backwards from midfield and along the defence and he Tenag sunk to his knees basically in the technical area and it it looked a little bit desperate for someone who's normally quite calm and placid there. I've never seen him do that before. You know, if it was Guardiola doing that, you'd just be like, that, that's pencil for you. <laughs> very dramatic, isn't it? Very dramatic, yeah. Um, but you know, Tenag doesn't really do that. And I looked at it and I'd initially put it in my, my piece for the for the morning from the game, saying that there, there was a hint of desperation about his body language on on the touchline and even, you know, it would have been a disastrous couple of weeks for, for United and for us if they'd lost. Um, I don't think there's any danger he'd have been under pressure, but there's certainly a degree of pressure building. It's it's eased a little bit after that result, but it could come back on very quickly. And, you know, like we said there, if they finish eighth this season or or ninth or whatever it was that the bookies should predict in, then he's going to be in a whole world of trouble, I think. But yeah, at the moment, he's, you know, he's, he's the best man for the job, I think, at the moment. Partly because this is, I mean, this is his squad now, which is, you could say it's an argument for the reason why he's the best man for the job and an argument for the reason why he's not, because it is his squad and he's making a bit of a, a, a mess of it. You talk the about the owners, season. that's another problem in itself. Like, say if Tenard goes, we discussed this every week again, that's his team, that's his squad. Yeah. And then the manager's going to come in and inherit those players. And that's been the cycle of the last few years. There's no cohesion, structure, yeah. aligned recruitment where the managers can pick up where the other one left off and have that kind of aligned philosophy and the players to suit it. Well, that's it. The signings have all been clearly Ten Hag signings. You know, John Murray was signed to play as Ten Hag wants. That's undeniable. Look at the 
players that have come oh, in who, from Holland. Keith Voss wanted them. Or oh, Keith Voss. Yeah, <laughs> he was at the game as well he on was, Saturday. Yeah, wasn't he? he was. Um, I think he called it. I think he called it home on Instagram a few weeks ago. Yeah. So I think he's there pretty, pretty regularly now. Um, but yeah, you, you can't make all those signings and then change manager now because the next manager coming in probably isn't going to want an Eredivisie All Stars team. And it's a good way to put it. You know, there's there's Amrabat's still a bit of an unknown quantity, um, but there's clearly doubts over Anthony's ability as a 85 million pound right winger um, Martinez I think is clearly a good signing um, and Arna there's, there's question marks at the moment Malassia probably question marks you back up left back I think he was solid enough last season but he looks like um, what he is a player he for the final yeah yeah that. and even you know even Amrabat um, you know I, the I jury's still out definitely the jury's still out and I don't know if another manager coming in would look at that and think I want him as me kind of backup number six because he's you know, he's had an he's had an okay career, but nothing that he's done in his club career suggests he's good enough for Man United. And don't get me wrong, he was phenomenal in the World Cup, but Cleverson was phenomenal in the World Cup. So Tie, but he made that tackle on Mbappe. What are you on about? Was it? It was a he great tackle. He has to be a world class yeah, player yeah. if he made that yeah. tackle. Um, and like I say, maybe, maybe I'm doing a disservice. Maybe he'll turn out to be really reliable. But I'm just saying, at 27, there's nothing on his club CV that makes you think he's good enough for United. And Ten Hag knows him brilliantly maybe Ten Hag will get the best out of him but in a way that's kind of the point if you need to stick with Ten Hag now you've backed him and the other issue is the, the list of you know I, I did something last week and the, of the top six in the betting to, to replace him I think three were sacked in their last job uh, it's a handsy flick Conte Conte and I can't remember the other one was none of those names were inspiring uh, I mean Michael Carrick is fifth favourite he's managing the championship Roberto De Zerbi got beat 6-1 last week um, Graham Potter's the other one who was in there you know, Potter Conte, Nagelsmann all sacked in their last job. Championship manager is his fifth favourite. Then again, you look at Arsenal and you kind of look how Arteta emerged, and it was not someone you'd expect to take him to this to this point. No, they're at. no, it wasn't. And you know, the, what Arteta had is time to reshape that squad in, entirely. I mean, that's the great thing that Arteta has done that he got rid of so many high earners, aging players at Arsenal that were not only not pulling their weight but weren't contributing to the dynamic he wanted and he's you know he's clearly a bit of a quirky oddball it's fair to say I think some of the stuff he comes out with and um, and, and whatnot, and the stuff from the Arsenal all or nothing but he's got a young team that are all buying into what he does now and, and they're proven to be successful and maybe that's you know that that kind of works for Ten Hag's favour maybe that's what Ten Hag needs he needs time because most managers will go through a spell where, where things aren't working and look at Pep's first season at City it was a bit of a shocker the point where a lot of people were saying, oh, this told you so, it'd never work in the Premier League and no one's saying that now. So, you know. Looks like United have got their version of Claudio Bravo, not their Edison. Well, I was thinking does, that the last yeah, few weeks. Yeah, God. definitely. Yeah. I think there's uh, there's definitely concerns on that front. Last question then, Tyrone. Have you got TikTok? Uh, no, haven't. <laughs> well, the producer has put this in. If you have got TikTok and you are listening to this podcast... Uh, we're close. No, we're sorry, we'll have hit 6,000 followers. So if you're a TikTok oh, I'll man... I'll download it and make it 6,001. Yeah. <laughs> I've not downloaded TikTok, believe it or not, uh, contrary to what you might think. My dancing's for private private consumption. <laughs> and we're over, five, well, nearly over 5,000 on YouTube as well. So head across the YouTube channel and check her out on those platforms. But for now, thank you very much, Tyrone. Thank you, Stephen. And thanks, listeners. Have a great week. Take care.